Welcome to another edition of the Bandwagon Podcast. And today I have got, um, again, like I said before, when I'm building up that Venn diagram, um, somebody who I've always wanted on. And you've got to play your cards right at the right timing to get the, the right guest in at the right time. I think I have at this point. So uh, welcome to Preet Corgill. Oh, thanks so much, Ricky. Timing is brilliant, isn't it? The Labour Party reshuffles going on, isn't it, at the same time? <laughs> You know something, because this is going to come out in a couple of days, so I've missed out on the exclusive. I'll probably know the exclusive, but I probably won't say, I won't be able to share. So, again, timing of the essence, really. So, as far as what you could say, you're staying as you are, aren't you? Uh, yeah, I've had the call from Keir to stay in the shadow cabinet, but also to stay in the uh, brief of development um, minister. So, that's absolutely amazing. Uh, so, however, let's on. see what the detail means a little, a little bit later on. There's some big um, moves going on, so we'll have to wait and see what the updates are going to be. So, as I, I mean, I'll get back, to, I'll go, I'll get to the, the story in a bit. But in terms, of, you've just mentioned it again around Shadow Secretary of International Development. What does that to the average person? What does that actually mean? So, basically, um, we have the. Uh, we we have an act uh, in parliament that me, that states very clearly how much money we spend so our commitment is 0.7% uh, of gni that we spend on overseas development uh, assistance so and that money is split so some of it goes to humanitarian aid and disaster so if there's a famine if there's you know yemen is the world's worst uh, humanitarian uh, you, you know uh, crisis uh, we've seen the situation of afghanistan with famine so you work with the multilateral system that's normally led by the united nations and so you will support those kind of humanitarian efforts but the predominant element of uh, the uh, the work that we do in de in uh, development is really um, <clears throat> about how do we spend taxpayers' money to reduce poverty around the world. Right. And you are there's a, a body that looks at how the money is actually being spent, so that making sure that there's no wastage for the taxpayer. It's absolutely focused on poverty and addressing inequalities. And so the department, when it used to exist, because the government took it over actually did that very, very well. So it spent UK taxpayers' money so they could feel assured there's no wastage. We don't give money to governments. We give money to bilateral programmes in various countries, a lot of it in Africa, for example, uh, you know, in conflict state situations. You know, we know people are really, really struggling. And it, it's not just about our moral duty. It's a, There's a security argument here. It's about how you build relationships, how we want to assert ourselves on the world stage, post-Brexit especially. And it's showing that actually Britain has its reputation because of institutions like that. And it was a world leader. We had some of the best economists, best scientists, best people working in the development uh, field. And so it's that collaboration. How do we work together with different countries, just like we've got NHS here, just like we've got public health and education infrastructures. Surely all countries should have that so that they can sustainably develop their own, uh, you know, uh, infrastructure and their offer to their people as well. So that's in a short, very brief nutshell is, but it's amazing. It's so big. The, the, the brief is, I mean, it's just fascinating. Yeah, because you could like you, you one could obviously you know based on the description, um, you can see what the difference is between the foreign office in terms of some of the duties that it's doing compared to what you're doing is more kind of making those things happen, but obviously having its own separate agenda. Do people confuse both of the offices at the times, or, or do they work very closely? 
Oh, they do. I mean, this government's confused and that's why it's merged them. It doesn't understand that diplomacy is very different to d development. And what we can't go back to is where we had those scandals like the Pergo Dam scandal back in the Conservative days where you end up having trade for aid. This is not what this is about. This is not trying to leverage with other countries saying we'll give you this amount of money to invest in you know, a public service. But actually, we expect this sort of trade back from you or we want to do uh, you know whether it's uh, you know investing, building roads, building whatever it might be? It can't be that situation. The act is very clear that the money has got to be spent on reducing poverty and addressing inequalities. So that's the focus. Tracking your journey from Lordswood Girls School to come to where you are now, how does how did you get to specialise in this? In this area, don't worry, I've got a lot more uh, little quiz quiz things I'll drop in. Um, how did you get to this position where you actually specialize in, in in this area? How do you get how do you get picked and say, right, okay, you're gonna do this rather than doing, I don't know, become shadow health secretary? Well, it, you know, being appointed onto the shadow front bench was really um, you know, because of Keir Starmer becoming the leader back in 2020. And of course, during the middle of a pandemic. And so it's been quite a challenging time being the Secretary of State. For international development especially because you couldn't travel and you know sometimes you do need to go and see the impact of these programs directly by visiting various countries but what a fascinating journey from lords with girls to be i'm sitting here in parliament and it's still a privilege even though it's been four years since being elected you know uh just being here and understanding the power of um uh you know our parliament and actually our democracy is, is just uh, for me, I'm in awe because when you're growing up, you know, my biggest influence was my dad, the late Daldrick Singh Shurgal, as you know, but, um, you know, all of us were really in awe of parliamentarians. We used to think that they knew so much and, you know, we'd look up to them. I certainly was one of those people. And you always think you need to know a lot and have done a lot before you can even apply to becoming a member of parliament. It's only when you get here, you realise that actually the only thing that stops you is you yourself because, you know, I think especially women, we go through this situation of like feeling like we've got an imposter syndrome, like surely we can't apply for a job because, you know, you need lots of uh, qualifications or you need to have done various, uh, uh, you know, gained other experience. But it's not it's not it's not the case, really. I think politics essentially is about changing, is about affecting change in our society. It's about seeing the things that you, whether it's locally, whether it's regionally, whether it's nationally. And so if you've got a passion for making a difference um, then actually politics is definitely for you. But coming from our background, the Sikhs, mm. it wasn't something that our parents pushed us into. They didn't say, oh, yeah, go to university, you're going to become a politician. It was always be a lawyer, be a doctor, get into a good profession, teaching, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And I think, uh, but for me, though, I suppose my dad was always into politics. He stood as a councillor and successfully we always had politicians in our home. We, he'd regularly make us go out leafleting. We used to find it boring as a teenager. And, and, you know, people used to say, your house is like this front room. There's always people in your in your house. Like, what's going on? And that was my dad, really, because anyone he'd meet on the street in the Gurdwara, he'd said, yeah, come over to our house. We'll absolutely help you fill out a form because Preet will do it. And I used to say to my dad, oh, my God, I really don't know what the DWP yeah. uh, requirements are. It, is it this surgery? <laughs> this surgery. Totally. And he used to say, he used to say to me, but it doesn't matter if you can't help anybody else, you're no use to anyone. And you're no, you know, just being there for yourself is not enough. And I remember him saying that to me when I went away to university, he said, look, it's all great. You're going to go and get yourself a degree. But the question you need to ask yourself is what are you going to give your community? What else are you going to offer and do 
and and don't just think that everything you're doing in your life is about attaining something for yourself or it's all about acquiring something and that I suppose that never stayed with me it's no surprise then Ricky right that having a father who was so progressive in the 80s during the recession was there with the minor strike had set up a smart sadar for women from India in the 80s domestic abuse wasn't a term and you know the committee you're from public health and you're going to probably laugh at this but the committee basically girls used to come to my dad and and say look uh you know I'm having this problem it could be whatever it could be around wages exploitation around treatment isolation all of that and uh five gurdwara committee men used to turn up to this house and basically what would they say they'd say to the um elders they'd say if you treat this woman like this we're going to shame you in the community and my dad used to take me along and say right sit with the woman in the room separately and find out from her if she's being treated incorrectly because we'll have to report it to the police as well. Mm. And I would be like, oh my goodness, this is like really serious stuff. But looking back on it, there was nothing like that for our community. There wasn't the support services, were there? We were pretty much having to meet those needs and and fulfill those gaps by actually identifying what our communities needed. I think it was in cases like, you know, some of the things that you just said there, I think one of the strongest points of like what the Sikh community stands for in, in my, in, you know, in my opinion is that it's been very well self-policed for so many decades, like in terms of what your dad was doing there. And I think those commissioning services have kind of taken that for granted that we kind of hidden in any kind of data anyway, you know, how, how difficult it how difficult data monitoring is anyway, to finance the need of, a, of the, of the community. Would you say that's one of being one of the challenges to kind of progress from having that conversation with that lady in the room to how do you kind of evolve that subject to something now and say making sure that that person doesn't get missed? It's absolutely spot on question, really, because you're you're right, because we've been a self-sufficient community, never really needed to go out and seek support from local authorities or from government unless it was on, obviously on big national legislation. Uh, we've just got on with it and provided services. But of course, as our populations have grown and the need has grown and expanded, you know, we've seen a lot of people from Italy, from Spain, from Afghanistan, Sikhs uh, migrate over, especially in the last 10 to 15 years. And you can see it now when you go to the Godot, visibly how mixed and how diverse um, that really is. And I think one of the things that struck me is you come to Parliament with this view that actually you are going to be able to affect change because populations matter. They matter to government. Policy matters. It matters, you know, that you are you have got the right, uh, you know, sort of policies. You've been able to do the impact assessments as well, understanding actually how they affect various populations. So, you know, in my naivety, thinking that the campaign to get the ONS to uh, give Sikhs the option to tick uh, Sikh in, under the ethnicity gap, bearing in mind in legislation, Sikhs and Jews are recognised as an ethnic group and a religious group. Um, I didn't realise how difficult this was going to be. And yet, it's so basic coming from local government as well, being a councillor and then working as an officer. I see the huge gaps. And it, it really struck me that the cabinet office, its civil servants absolutely admitted to me that across 180 data sets that cabinet office looked at, there was no data on Sikhs. And yet they couldn't tell me, therefore, why they weren't happy with giving Sikhs the option to ticket, even though 100,000 Sikhs protest voted in the last election. And all I was being told by the ONS or other people was your community split. And I, I did a sociology degree and I'm thinking, I find this quite insulting. I've got statisticians telling me that 100,000 people isn't a big sample. But actually, why does that matter when it comes to the Sikh community? But we don't apply that same uh, analogy for other communities. 
right? So it, it really struck me that there's something quite not right here because either you want to address uh, unmet need and gaps, because of course the ONS was telling every public body it could only use ethnic minority categories. If it had told public bodies, use religion, no problem. I wouldn't have an issue. I'd be very grateful. I even posed that to the ONS. I said, why don't you make it mandatory? And they said, oh no, there's no public acceptability for, around people disclosing their religion. So, okay, so you know there's a big need for this community, you recognize it, but you don't want to do anything about it. So th th this just tells you ideologically something's wrong about the politics. Now, would you say that the Sikh community are not well engaged and therefore they don't know how to hold their MPs to account, uh, especially conservative MPs, because they are the ones in power and they are the ones that failed to address this for the community? I don't know the answer to that question. I certainly, I saw our community very well engaged into this campaign, coming out in support of it. And I think it's been really, really disappointing to see actually the government doesn't seem to care that much about the Sikh community either. Yeah, I mean, if you if you think about it on the last census data, I think there was something like, you know, eight, just under 800,000 um, in, in some aspects. So you're almost talking about one in seven, one in eight people just abstaining just from a, from a point of, of non-recognition. They do get rec recognised in, in that format and then dismissed. I mean, just pure frustration-wise, how do you even start to challenge that system? I know you've had a few challenges, and I'll get to them a little bit later. But you know what you're what you're talking about there is is a frustration of process and a frustration of of system. How does prequel guilt from that background try and start that conversation to try and break that? Yeah, so I mean, I wasn't deterred, honestly, the, the doors were closed, the doors were, you know, really, there was a lot of pushback, of course, from government ministers in terms of not giving the information, not explaining to you why they're not going to support this. And it, it's really to frustrate you and to say it's never going to happen. The thing is, for me, it just spurred me on, it made me think, actually, I need to tell my community that this is a really big issue, and it's concerning them. And how does it affect them locally? So why is it that we just don't know how, why X amount of Sikh men die? from uh, liver disease, for example, we know that it's probably related to alcohol consumption, but without the evidence base, we can't then direct the testing, making sure that we have a campaign and that we are meeting those needs, right? Um, so it really upset me. It upset me because certain people in our community decided to make this a, um, a kind of theological argument and they were missing the point about actually this is going to benefit our community by being monitored having services that are targeted to meeting their health inequality needs, whatever the other issues are, like resources around education is with the migration in, in Smedic, for example, is a big issue. Uh, we don't have enough housing stock. And it, it just struck me that there are certain people that are prepared to go to such an extent that will harm our community as opposed to actually fighting for the good cause. And I think, yes, you can be frustrated, you can get very upset and angry, and then what? And I've gone through that process where I felt really upset and I thought, you know, but then I thought, fine, OK, this is what government's going to do. Is this going to be the last census? I don't know. But how can I now influence it about what it does in the next stages as to how it's going to collect that data? How can we make sure that we are trying to fill those gaps? That conversation is still ongoing. It's still being had. I'm still going to keep pushing. So if there is another census, it'll be a bigger campaign and we'll make sure that the community are really heard. Uh, and we'll have a lot more time. Of course, during a pandemic, it's been very difficult as well. Um, but yeah, you know, we've just got to keep going. M my thing is never give up because actually the system is there to make you give up. It's to make you feel frustrated, to make you feel hopeless. 
I don't feel that. There's good people like you in public health, mm -hmm. Ricky, that are doing your bit. And it matters. It matters the work that you're trying to do, right? Because you're trying to make sure that populations are getting the services that they need and, and that services are being targeted and commissioned properly. Mm. And, and, and just to echo that, it's not just like the seat crate. There's quite a lot of different communities are also in this, in this boat. And uh, yeah. I think it's just being a bit more vocal about it and, and you know from being from from the community i think we're probably one of the ones kind of leading that way really in terms of having that fight as as usual as i would say um so we took just just touching back and going back to some of the challenges that you faced you know labor's always been good in terms of having women representation within within parliament and had some of the highest um representation in, within within parliamentary history um how did you find the challenge of a being a woman within there, and then one a woman of colour, so to speak, to come in, in into into Parliament and being able to kind of absorb that within there? Because you know, if you're around Smith, you're not really <laughs> you're not really used to kind of the hierarchies and institutions of power. How did you kind of transform yourself? Not transform yourself. Well, still be real, so to speak, to your roots, and then have that representation in 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 uh, in Whitehall. I mean, it's fascinating when you come here. When I brought my daughters, they were like, this is like Hogwarts. It, you know, it's like <laughs> Harry Potter. It's amazing. And they they are just thrilled. To me, you know, I, I visited Parliament, but to actually work here and to experience it from a different perspective, it's it's a huge privilege. And there's a lot to learn about all the different processes, quite archaic as well. Um, but I, But for me, it was the one thing that, you know, during the election campaign, when I was knocking doors in my constituency, it was really brilliant to just hear people say, my daughter goes to Lords with Girls School. It's absolutely brilliant you've standing to be a candidate because what they could see was a pathway from a normal comprehensive, you know, um, school and being able to actually put yourself forward uh, and seeing actually that our parliaments become much more open. When I was when I was um, looking up to uh, the, the previous Labour government under Blair and Gordon Brown, I was in awe. But Parliament then didn't reflect the country either, did it? So no. I'm so proud that my party now has exceeded female MPs, and actually we have seen those from Bain backgrounds grow consistently uh, at every election, and it's absolutely brilliant to see that that group has really increased and it's good to see that it's increased in terms of females um and you know i think it's really important though that our experience uh some of the barriers that some of us have faced uh or what we go through we can find time to talk about those collectively and understand actually is it just me going through this is it actually a, a bigger issue is it much more broader and wider in terms of what doors are available to you and I think, you know, the one thing I, I, I have to say is, is that being able to be here and just learn and take it all in it, it is huge. Right. I never take it for granted. I also don't forget where I come from because I know that this could easily be taken away. And if you don't do the first and foremost important thing, which is take care of your constituents, be absolutely focused and delivering for them. Everything else is then secondary. Right. I wouldn't be able to do the brief that I do which is life-changing, if I don't do the bread and butter of my role, which is making sure that I'm serving the people of Birmingham Edgbaston. And I never forget that. It's something I was told when I got elected that I should never forget that. And I've, it's never it sort of left me, really. Yeah, just disclosure, I went loads with boys as well. And I did politics there, so. Well, hey. There you go. <laughs> All the best people. <laughs> <laughs> um, so 
you know, you were just talking about, you know, having that collective experience and coming together and, and passing that on. Is there sort of an active kind of program or you, you know, having a personal interest of trying to get more Asians within involved in politics? Because let's face it, we have got prime ministers up and down the, the country, uh, you know, every evening, um, you know, talking about party family politics every day. Um, do you reckon those are transferable skills into something more formal? <sighs> well, God on our politics, some good politics. <laughs> It's all the same, really. Well, yeah, exactly. Politics is politics, isn't it? I mean, um, so ask me the question again, Ricky. Yeah, I'm, I'm saying, is this something kind of more active in terms of where you're trying to uh, um, build on the next generation of Asians coming yeah. into politics? Yeah, I mean, look, I, what's been really interesting, though, is um, so when I got elected in 2017, I knew I wanted to have young people in uh, my office and give them the ability to understand what an MP does, um, because I certainly didn't have that opportunity. Right. And everybody thinks an MP's life is all about Parliament. It's also about your party. It's all it's also about the kind of nitty gritty stuff you do, which is about on being on the phones, knocking the doors, the hard slog. Right. Um, and I have to say, we've also benefited from having young people. We've learned so much from them, me and my team, in terms of what's going on in schools, what's the issues that they are facing. And I think that is so healthy to do. So I've been part of various mentor programs. So parliamentors, for example, having young people from different faith backgrounds from the University of Birmingham. I've been for three years in a row, been mentoring that group. I'm also doing the co-op mentoring group. So uh, women from BAME backgrounds who have really found it very difficult to try and break through, um, sort of giving them support. Um, and honestly, I've never known a time until recently where people are emailing me from uh, not just Sikh, but Asian backgrounds saying, we're really interested in politics, actually. We see the work that you do. We really want to know how do you get in? What's mm. the pathway to, to progressing in that? And I think, that is so heartening to see. And, and let's not forget, people are looking across to places like Canada in terms of what Jagmeet Singh, the NDP, has done, but also Trudeau in terms of the representation uh, more broadly. And I think it's really making our community wake up that if you want to affect change, you've really got to be part of the system. No longer can you sit on the periphery. No longer can you expect any other organisation to step up for you. Quite a lot of what's going on at the moment as well is that individual people are having to raise their voices as well. We saw that in the farmers' protest, you know. So many people were writing to their different MPs. It wasn't just a organisation sort of organising it. People felt so passionately about this. Uh, and I was talking to MPs and they're like, you know, why, why are your, uh, why are Sikhs so, uh, this so important to them? And I said, look, many of us still own land, you know, and that's leased out. And so this is absolutely personal to so many Sikhs living here, but so many people from Punjab area as well, whether it's UB or other states. Um, and I think, you know, th there's something about how we communicate to our elected members actually what are the issues for the Sikh community what are the issues for me as a personal no longer I, I'm telling people stop relying on others to do that for you you've got to have those direct relationships it's really really important do you think um you're a bit of an easy easy target that you're supposed to you know like especially the Asian one or the Sikh MP so to speak to raise absolutely everything within them when you just kind of answered it in this in in some ways where that some of the MPs are so disengaged with some of their community needs or what they um, what their demography is within their constituents to know what are really important that they kind of miss that bit 
I mean, it, 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 it does sound a bit bizarre that, you know, why is it important? Well, you know, you're an MP. That's your job to know why is it important. Do you think that was a bit, you know, you become an easy target for it? I think, look, I think I see it as my role as the all-party parliamentary chair for British Sikhs to make sure that MPs do have the correct information. Don't forget, lots of people can email MPs giving lots of incorrect information about what's actually going on, what do the laws actually say. We saw that on social media, though, didn't we? We saw the, yeah. the, the, the disinformation. This is only going to increase, right? Uh, you know, as you go forward, with, with social media platforms being allowed for any... For, Look how look how much gets spread. I mean, I I thought the piece that was done recently around um, you know, how were hashtags being used to kind of reframe the narrative almost and the messaging around the farmers' protest. It was linked to kind of uh, you know, Khalistan or uh this is about terrorists or this is about this. And actually, what you found was that these are hashtags and fake accounts that are being set up, but the, thing, the worrying thing for me was how the media used this information. They didn't seek to go and fact check it. They didn't seek to check whether this is accurate or not. What they were doing was taking snippets from some of these face accounts and just putting it in their news media. And I think that is so dangerous. So there is a, I do see a duty in that, you know, I am sharing information, trying to be as impartial as I possibly can to my fellow colleagues so that they can make their own mind up in terms of how they support their constituents. But we do get lots of people trying to send us information, which, you know, you do think this is absolutely incorrect. Yeah, proper questionable. Um, <laughs> I'm telling you. So I think, you know, MPs don't always have the time to look at well, what's actually accurate. Who do I go to? Right. Who do I use? And so I think that is helpful for them to be able to talk to myself and Tan and others as well um, that, that know what's going on. And actually, in all fairness, quite a lot of our MPs are well engaged in terms of their constituents. Um, and understanding some of their needs, because for a very long time they've, they've had that relationship. I think for newer MPs, it's much more uh, tougher and it's been quite challenging because of COVID as well. So it, with the farmers protest, especially, I mean, I talked about it in my very first podcast that I, I did. You know, it was it, it still is. It's such an emotive subject in itself. How do you keep issues like that on the political agenda, not only internally, but externally? Well, you talked about timing. I mean, again, another timing today. Uh, <laughs> India's parliament opened the winter session and the and the laws have been repealed today. So, oh, my yep. gosh, uh, Ricky, what a historical day yep. this is for you and I. Um, look, I think, you know, the next thing for farmers is going to be making sure that they've got the uh, MSP guaranteed in law. It's going to be maybe uh, looking at uh, repatriations for families who have lost loved ones during the kind of um, the protest. So many people, you know, 750 people have died. What about compensation for their families, about how they were treated and what the they've endured? Tractors that have been damaged, you know, all those kind of things as well. Absolutely. The damage, the loss, you know, that many farmers have, been, uh, have incurred during the pandemic, for example, it has been, you know, this victory has come at a cost. And so this is absolutely brilliant that Narendra Modi made that announcement and it just shows you the resolve. The one takeaway I have from the farmers protest is that the world saw the biggest social movement in the world. And what, what it's seen in, in you know, is, is that it achieved the change so, you know, around the world, including in the United Kingdom, our right to protest is that threat. And this is, you know, everybody's fundamental democratic right to be able to, you know, peacefully go out and protest if they don't agree with their governments. Right. And this idea that suddenly we should we should prevent uh, our citizens from doing that. Well, I absolutely wrong. This has really inspired me. It's inspired so many people to say, 
you, you know, you, you don't have to put up with the status quo. You can bring about change, the power in the people. There's so much in that. And I think it's been just absolutely phenomenal the resilience of those farmers, yeah. they've endured the harshest weather, you know, extremities of like the heat as well. My gosh, my, my heart goes out to the, each and every mm. one of them for what they've achieved, really. And the challenges are now is what you said in that way, but also then having a system that reflects their needs as well, you know, to actually change what the narrative and the strategy is going to look like in forward is just as crucial. I think that's where the leaders, especially within those movements, have to come and use their, their skills, um, you know, to fruition. Yeah, definitely. Being an MP, obviously, in that way, you, you know, you've kind of um, highlighted some of the, the positives and the strengths and stuff, um, you know, um, that you can achieve and what you do. But it also could come out of a bit of a cost as what we saw recently with Sir David Amis and, you know, with all those. Things. And you've obviously expressed you, you've expressed some of your kind of own safety needs of, uh, of around that. Can you just share some of the inst- what, what, what you actually meant and what actually happened in terms of you having some threats to your own life about it? Yeah, so, I mean, as an MP, you know, none of us expect that this is part of the job. You don't expect that kind of abuse because you're trying to do your very best. You understand that people have come to you as the last resort. You know, they're quite desperate and MPs want to be able to meet as many of their constituents and surgeries. Of course, you've got to feel safe, right? I mean, David Amos couldn't have predicted that. I mean, you know, that was a surgery that was booked in. So the person had an appointment. Um, you know, but of course, if you've got no background on somebody, how on earth will you be able to know that they're a risk factor to you? Um, you know, but we've seen it with Joe Cox. We saw it with Stephen Timms. And in Stephen Timms's case, it was a female, you know, who came and, and just stabbed him. And he's very lucky to have survived. Right now. I think, you know, this is also brought to light, actually. How does the police share information with MPs around possible risks in their own areas, for example, right? This is something I do think about because don't forget, we go and door knock. We are out physically visible in terms of where we are going to be. And we don't always have people around us in in terms of in crowds, right? So uh, it is a really difficult job. And, you know, when I was in India, people used to say, I can't believe MPs in England. You just walk around like normal people. I said, yeah, we are normal people. Um, And I don't agree that we should have the kind of status that some uh, countries have for their parliamentarians with security and- You you have the lalabatti on the car. That's what you you need. Exactly, you know, and, and in some ways, there's something quite nice being able to just be part of the people that you serve right I don't want to have any special treatment just because of um, the position that that I'm doing but I think it does put into perspective that you can't take it for granted so I had um, somebody ring my office saying that they were going to um, kill me and that you know making just very blatant threats you have to take that seriously right so it's surgery day anyone can turn up the good thing is that the police have turned up on both occasions when I've had to call them and now I've taken security Um, not from police, because I know that the police is really, really stretched, but I have security at my surgeries because I don't want to take any chances at all, not for myself, not for my staff. Um, I I think, you know, you have to take this uh, really, really serious. I mean, I I was just thinking, you know, imagine being in that position myself, and then you still have the motivation to kind of represent people who, you know, the political system, the first past the post system is, I remember it was trying to get taught, you know, it was trying to get taught, um, somebody my my teacher was was on a bar it was saying look you could have um 40 40 you know can vote labor then you've got 30 percent can vote lib dems and 30 percent can vote um conservative but because you got 40 percent you'll get in 
yet 60% is against you. <laughs> you know, how do you kind of balance the, the needs of those people who might sit opposite you from political from a political ideology? Look, I think it's about, it's really tough as, a, as an MP. I mean, one of my things is I, I want to get more people engaged in politics. It doesn't matter who they vote. It's actually getting more people part of the democratic system because actually there's a big cohort of people that just don't come out and vote. They're not yeah. interested. They're not engaged in politics. So what do you do about them as well? But do you, right? I, I got, I, like, I'm, I'm using some of my, uh, I did politics degree as well. Um, when, I always find when people say to me, um, oh, polit I'm not interested in politics. I find that the most politically charged sentence that somebody can say because that's actually demonstrating why the political system doesn't work for you. That's actually why you need to get involved. That it's part of like, if you're from a seat, it's part of your kind of your faith, your, your principle. But then if it's not your religious duty or whatever, it's still a really important factor because ultimately you need to have a say. Yeah. And I think people have started to see that any government having an 80 majority thinking that they can do whatever they want isn't also healthy, that it isn't helpful that a government can feel that, you know, the very people that put it into office, it can just go against everything that it promised them at the last, you know, uh, election. It can go against all of that and somehow it's all OK. You know, that's not the way we've we've done politics in this country. I mean, the corruption we've seen under the Conservatives' return is something that, you know, being out on the doorstep, lots of people are very angry. They said one thing that we're really proud proud of here in Britain is our democracy and our being honest and the integrity that we instill. How are we going to hold other governments to account if our own government is behaving so badly? And I think it's absolutely right. You know, we have got to make sure more people don't say politics is corrupt or actually you're all the same. We're not all the same. I, you know, I, I, I really take issue with that. Sometimes I do get that from our community is that all politicians are corrupt. I said, like, no, they push back. You can have integrity. You know, it is possible, for goodness sake. You know, I, I get that. But do you, do you also have, understand in terms of like from when people have been working from home, the COVID has dominated the news cycle. And then when you hear and you see some of the, some of the, oh, I can't really want to go into it as much, but when you see some of the people getting caught out um, <laughs> do, doing things and then contracts going to, to certain places that it just reinforces their kind of, their, their, their stereotype of, of, of MP behaviour. It does, but it also should reinforce that the opposition is doing a very good job in sort of really exposing the government and trying to bring about change and say, actually, this is unacceptable. None of us think this is right. We've got to have transparency. We can't have one rule for us and one rule for the rest of the public. It just doesn't want, you know, you, because it does what you exactly said. It just makes people disengage from politics. But these are really important decisions. You know, when I meet families who are trying to work, trying to make, you know, trying to save a little bit of money, but then they're facing universal credit cuts. They're in despair. They don't know where to go because all the CABs are being closed down. The law centres are being really restricted. Getting access to justice is really difficult. Now, if you're one of those people that is, you know, in work, trying to make ends meet, and then, you know, we've seen the cost of uh, living increase, but wages have stagnated. There's been low growth in the country. A lot of people are really, really just don't know what else to do. They, they can't see an alternative of getting out of this system. You know, it's so important that Labour can show them you don't have to accept the status quo. Things can be different. We can make Britain great again. We've got to make sure that we are investing in those industries that really need uh, the support, especially because of the impact of Bre Brexit as well. But we need to train our young people for jobs of the future. I mean, where is the vision? We can be so hopeful. 
this government just doesn't have a plan, I have to say, you know. So that's why I think, you know, we are trying to show the show the, uh, the, the country as well that, you know, whilst opposition is very frustrating and it can seem like we're constantly moaning, I think we've had yeah. 23 U-turns, we're doing a pretty good job. Um, it's important. It's important that people know the facts because, you know what, honestly, it scares me when I'm sometimes talking to people and they haven't even heard that some of this corruption has happened because they say, oh, well, I never saw that on the, on the news. They don't show it in that way. No, they don't. And, and you know, this is a real concern. So making sure people have the facts is so, so important uh, in a way that we've never really had to worry about with the government. Uh, mm -hmm. But this is the government that's stoking cultural wars and is into wokeism, I have to say. Yeah, I, I, well, I've got it out of, uh, out of fairness. <laughs> I need to try and get some, some Tory MPs on that, but I just don't know any. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I will get into making some Lib Dems on as well. I'll I give mean, you some that, good ones locally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, yeah, text me after which guys or girls. Um, in terms of like some of the challenges that you that are coming in now, you know, Omicron is at very early stages of what we know uh, at that bit. In my line of work, in terms of trying to get some of the people to try and get some of that, you know, you, we talked about it slightly earlier around disinformation. How, how do we, how, what is the, what is one of your suggestions in terms of how we actually get the true information out to the people? Because algorithms, um, all these social media platforms will push negative um, stories because they get more clicks and they get more that. And one of the challenges that I, I, I personally felt in my, my day job has been trying to get the truth out of there in terms of, sort of factual information out of it. And it's just getting harder and harder. As an MP, what, how do you kind of ensure that to try to get the right information out there? I think this is a really big challenge for us. And, you know, it, it's MP should be evidence facing. I mean, we've got to lead by example. You can't go into the chamber and think it's OK to put, put, to put out uh, misinformation. And so often, you know, a lot of people do say a lot of things which isn't evidence based or they don't know what the source is. And therefore you do have to go away and think, OK, is that actually true or not? So I think, you know, how we use research sent to us and making sure it's credible, whether it's from institutions, whether it's from, uh, you know, experts, for example, and it can be on the variants, you know, uh, I mean, it's been brilliant that South Africa, they were doing the genome sequencing, they actually informed the rest of the world, uh, you know, of, of the the mutation of the variant and, and how we can sort of identify it in PCR tests. Um, uh, but, you, you know, it is making it so much more difficult, because even if you want to give information out, sort of, you know, you want to put a leaflet out, you're still limited in how, how much stuff you can put on there in order to engage people. And the thing is, a lot of people are on social media. People have got used to just wanting very quick snippets of information. They don't want to read lots of stuff. They don't want to listen to something for too long. And that's why we know lots of videos, people just read the, the subtitles, don't they? I mean, people just it's, have it's the time. TikTok news. I'm no. telling you, that puts a real challenge in because how do you keep people engaged and interested to know the facts? That means actually that you only have a very short uh, space to be able to give information. So you have to think about what is that one piece of information you want to leave somebody with? And seriously, it's come down to that. I mean, it's quite shocking almost. It's come down to one to two, three things that because people just are being bombarded with so much. You know, during a pandemic, there's so much negativity. I hear this from people all the time. They say every time I put the news on, it's something really bad and I, I don't want to hear it, right? So I think this is a really big challenge. It's only going to get worse. This is why parliaments, legislators around the world have got to come together and think about what they're going to do with social media platforms in terms of 
what gets uh, shared on there. Of course, there are lots of positive reasons why we should have it, but there's lots of negative things. And half of the time, it's actually finding out whether the bit that you've read of the information, which one's actually factually correct. Mm. Because, you know, you could read three to four different stories on the same thing and they could be telling you different pieces of information. I mean, that in itself is really concerning. Um, it kind of makes you think about when you did your dissertations back at university, you know, before the days of social media, because that's when I was there, how important it was to be in the library and find the text and the source and really go and find the information. I think we need to be doing more of that. We need to get back to sort of saying it's facts. It's it's what's true that is important as opposed to just obtaining information for the sake of it. Yeah, I mean, I mean it's kind of summarised really in the, in the vaccines where you got, you know, anti-vaxxers pro-vaxxers and you got the vaccine hesitant and I think it's just in terms of right, right look give you as much informed information as you can and make the informed decision not really just kind of like a lot of people getting you know I, I, I remember early I was really aggressive putting out my public health messages and all this stuff I just got to a point where I was just losing energy and then I could just see my kids was they watching tv you know they're seeing the daily death counts going up and I didn't realize the impact of what they was doing so I was I had to kind of shelter him from like your normal six o'clock news, which I don't think is right, really. Um, and and I, I think that to be aware of the content, what people are putting out, you know, can have significant mental health um, it, um, issues in the future, trust issues of of in, of of government institutions of information, and now anything the government puts out, people just question anything from either side of the part, you know, either side of the house. So. I think there's got to be some kind of internal conversation of saying with the growth of social media, we're not going to do, be able to get rid of it. But I do think that governments, regardless of everywhere, need to look at ways of how they're engaging differently. Because across the pond, Twitter got the American president in with, with, with Trump and how it's been utilised with troll farms, with um, everywhere out, putting out negative or splitting and being, um, you're getting like Russia, China, for example, playing the long game in terms of um, causing arguments within communities by sponsoring certain posts and doing this opposing opinions. And you can just see that disinformation kind of piece that you wrote about with the, we talked about with the Kassan movement. You can just see how social media now is becoming so, so important. And if you're not engaged and able to adapt, I think you're outdated. I, I, I can't, see you, can't see the relevancy in something about how we I think that's really interesting because I think there's also something about how we change our habits a little bit like now I find my my social media habits sort of consciously changing a little bit whereas I used to go and read quick um, bits of information I'm more inclined to go and find research from other sources whereas I'd rather just have a look at a post here maybe order something online have a whatsapp conversation with family as opposed to now, you know what, you know, the rest of the country are not on social media. They're not on Twitter. They're not sitting there constantly in a way that most people that are in that bubble are and watching what everybody's saying. And I think I think that's the bit, isn't it? It's reminding yourself, where is your sense of reality? Where is where is it all happening for you? Is it in your living room with your kids or is it actually on your gadget and you're in the Twitter space, which really means very little? And, I, you know, this morning I read that my um my usage last week was down by one one hour forty minutes and that that made me feel so good because I think now I, I had that did you? <laughs> I did I did eleven percent down but I was trying to concentrate but it's still like six plus six hours plus I'm still exactly so you know for me I want to reduce that like my my kids were saying 
in the Christmas holidays, mummy, you're only allowed your phone for one hour. And I was like, you know what? In, in some ways, that's probably not a bad thing. Like this idea that we could somehow can't live without it, that we are dependent on it is, is a feeling I'm not, I don't like. And I see it with our kids because you give them a gadget. You know, I, my, my daughter started secondary school, so she's finally got a phone. It's really fascinating for her. And, you know, she, I can see it. It's just the TikTok, the page. It's just the fascination of being on something and doing something as opposed to actually, well, what was the purpose of it? Mm. You know, what did I get out of it? What, what was it? What was, you know, and so I think we've got a challenge with ourselves and our kids if we want to really help them be healthy adults, um, you know, and make sure that they've got a balance in their life, that they don't become an addicted to any sort of thing, especially social media, because we know it, it can be very, very harmful as well. You talk about kids and, and different ages. You're 50 next year. Um, oh! <laughs> I told you I know. Ricky, never, never say a woman's age. My God. We're family, so it don't matter. So uh, what would uh, the next year, uh, sorry, the next year pre would have said to a younger pre, like some advice, especially oh. around, uh, especially her political journey? I would have said, well, don't wait as long as you did to have got into politics for a start. I would have I would have probably have definitely tried to do that in my early 30s, I think. Um, I, I think also, you know, one of the things is like I'm one of those prevaricators when I'm trying to make a decision, I take ages to get to that decision. And I will really, you know, I'll, I'm an art, whereas now I'll take decisions and I'll stick with them and I'll make decisions. And I think that's so important because sometimes, you know, whatever it might be it just means that you endure something for longer than you need to uh and actually life is so short and precious that sometimes you ju it's just about making a decision and just moving on and feeling okay about that um and so yeah uh and you know i would say this because i lost my dad in 2014 i wish i'd got to spend even more time with him you know i don't think it's never enough about uh, and more so about capturing his life experience, because I think, you know, we don't always get to record our parents or our grandparents' history. And when they're gone, they're gone. They take all of that knowledge about your family, you know, your background, your early years with them. And I think it would have been really great, even though I got to hear a lot about my dad's early years. There's probably lots of stories I didn't know. And I wish I had more time to have sat down and wrote his own diary or maybe his memoirs or something. Mm. Um, that would have been great. Um, yeah uh and you know probably would have had kids much younger but ao you know <laughs> life takes you to where it is and you've got to be grateful and yeah. i and i i really am so yeah yeah i'll, I'll be like no, i understand exactly what you just said there so i'm just gonna move on swiftly to the, sort of the last bits now um th th this is called the bandwagon um so this is allows it's a play on my surname obviously um it's an opportunity basically for you to kind of jump on a bandwagon or jump off one. So is there anything, that, uh, any kind of thing that you want to kind of share or get off your chest? Oh my goodness. That's really putting me on the spot. It can be anything. Yeah. It's cause like, have you made your question time debut yet? No. I'll wait. I'll wait, I'll wait for that one. So I'll, I'll wait, <laughs> I'll put that aside, but it could be anything. Jumping on the bandwagon. Oh my God. Uh... I think I definitely need to have a TikTok account and to probably do much more of the TikTok because I tell you, it's where all the youngsters seem to be. I've had to, I've uh, tragically, because of this, I've had to join it. I have <laughs> no idea. I, all I get is people just coming up, just dancing. And I'm like, I'm putting up, trying to put up little snippets of the, of the, of these podcasts. And I just don't have a clue what I'm doing on it. I'm all right on Insta and I know all the, but TikTok, I ain't got a, 
I honestly ain't got a clue. My kids are always trying to teach me some dance moves on in, on, on TikTok. That's what you're absolutely right. There seems to be lots of people doing lots of uh, sort of dancing and stuff like that, isn't there? I think it's it's time for your own podcast as well. <laughs> I'm just gonna keep. I'm just gonna keep giving you more work to do. Okay, fantastic. <laughs> that's it. That's it. No, okay. No, that's cool. Um, I really appreciate it. You know, making time um, and do this. I know you're extremely busy, and today of all days, um, I I just want to say like you know you. Uh, uh, inspirational role model in terms of like trying to find people to go on that political journey regardless of what your political allegiances are I think people need to kind of get involved in local politics especially councillors and stuff and then ultimately have that pathway from you know becoming an MP and maybe going on a little bit beyond for the number one job in the future do you see yourself going down that way Preet? Oh I don't know I don't know I think you know uh, I, I really enjoy what I do and um, I absolutely love being you know the MP for the place where I grew up and where I went to school I you know it's it's really tough like I never say never about where you want to go but it's so difficult when you have kids as well trying to just find that balance because as you said you could find you know I could I could do this every week for seven days that's it for 52 weeks a year it's so easy and I think since 2017 Honestly, MPs with with the election in 2019, we just haven't had a rest. And in recesses, you don't have a break. You you have to work, really. Mm. Um, and I think that's the challenge I have is like, when do you actually switch off? It's a really challenging thing. Like, you know, even trying to find time to meditate or do yoga or do other things. Um, it only lasts for a little bit, a little time. So, yeah. Well, look at <laughs> look at the Desi wedding schedule. And it's, so it's a miracle that you find any time to do this job. <laughs> Oh my God, all the family functions that you, you kind of have to look at. Well, what's a parliamentary requirement? How am I going to well, get on a seat? It's a convenient excuse. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> it's a lot of juggling because, you know, you'll upset a lot of family if you don't make it to various events, as you probably well, know. You, you, you probably end up holding a surgery anyway. Like, oh, can you saw how my extension? Flanda, Flanda, that is. You know what? You would not believe it. Honestly, sometimes I think, God, is there no escape? You know, I could be at a wedding. I've been at events. And I'm not even joking. People have come up to me and say, can I just talk to you about this piece of casework? And I'm like, I really, and my kids are like, but mommy, we have to go. And I'm like, I know it's so difficult, but then, you know, it's, you to, it, yeah. it's challenge. You have to listen. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. Thanks. Appreciate it. I really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, no, so I'll get you back you. on. Don't you worry. <laughs> well, you bugged me for how many months we finally made it. And what an iconic day. There you go. The farmers mate. laws have been repealed and Labour Party has undertaken a big reshuffle. My goodness, Ricky. <laughs> see, time. Cheers. All right. Brilliant. Lovely to see you.